week break um, because we were traveling a lot. Yeah. It's probably the most we've ever traveled in a two-month period. Yeah, we were. pretty nuts. We were gone just about every weekend for, like, two months straight. Um, just with, like, visiting friends in other places and having birthdays and trips and, I don't know, just, like, it ended up being so much. Um, so, yeah, we were like, ah, this is so much. So we were like, let's just, like, pause for a moment we were like trying to figure out times to like squeeze the podcast in and we just really didn't want to do that you know feel like we had to like squeeze it in so i was like let's just take a break so yeah it happens yeah exactly it's not not normal but eh. it's kind of worked out that way this summer yeah i think we had like half those trips planned and the other half just kind of like popped up yeah exactly but so we are back yay Um, and so we, we have mentioned in previous episodes, in a lot of episodes, actually, um, in like our first season, we allude to this book that neither of us had read and only heard about. Um, I didn't even know the name of it. Um, I just knew there was a book that I had heard about, about like, what it was like for like early humans essentially um and like what their sex life might be like that was it that was all i really knew um and we like talked about it a little bit in previous episodes um especially in the first season and then a few months ago i stumbled upon the book again i was like oh right that book i've been wanting to read that um and now I know the name of it it's sex at dawn and so I finally was like yes I need to read this book because I've been circling around it and I'm finally there so I found the book I read it and I was like oh my god this book is amazing Mike you need to read it so then Mike started reading it or rather listening to it um you know as an audiobook and he's almost done with it um and yeah, so we just wanted to chat about this book because we we mention it in so many episodes and like we talk about it with my parents a little bit in their episode. And so now we're like, okay. And we've even said like, we should dedicate an entire episode to this book. And so here we are, we're doing it. So this yeah. is that episode. Dedicated. At least one episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's... it might end up being two. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the book covers so much, and yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just it shocked me at how well written and how thoroughly researched. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, yeah, just just the ideas they they have, just like the theories they throw out there. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. But it, it makes sense too. Yeah, you know, they lay it out in such a easy to follow way, mm-hmm. and they they do a great job at showing like what the kind of traditional and like current like philosophy is behind evolution and how we came to be and mm-hmm. kind of more so what the reality is based on you know their accumulation of a whole bunch of research yeah so I mean it's been eye-opening for me that's for sure oh yeah definitely so yeah that's what we want to get into so that's that's the topic for today so before we get into the episode we are trying Ooh. 
this. It's called Limbo Series. Um, it's this really cool red can for those of you who are watching. Um, yeah, and it's by McKellar. And it's a Flemish primitive ale with raspberry. Um, and so the person at Soft Spirits where I bought this said it's kind of like a raspberry sour. A little bit. Um, and so it's supposed to mimic like, like an actual like beer. And I think it is. I think it's a beer that they took the alcohol out of. So they brewed it like a normal beer and then took the alcohol out, I think. Well, there it is, product of Belgium. Um, because yeah, it Belgium does beer. say on here, non-alcoholic, but it's 0.3%. So kind of like a kombucha. Like a kombucha is 0.5% alcohol. So like it's technically not 0%, but it also like isn't anything you're, like that's going to affect you. Like, you know, you can drink kombucha all day and you don't ever get buzzed because there's not enough alcohol in there. So this is kind of like the same thing. Um, but it's actually even less than that. It's 0.3%. And kombuchas can be like, I think, 0.5. I no, think so. I, I think. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that's, sure <laughs> that's what we're trying. So let's... Uh, let's give it a go. Yeah, let's give it a shot. Ooh, oh shit. Oh, yours is foaming. <laughs> mm. All right, I'll spill over, though. I'm expecting oh, it's good. Sour, Cheers. sweet and sour. Cheers, me more. Ooh, okay, so mine, like, totally foamed up, um, and so I just drank the foam. But the foam is pretty good. Ooh, that's tasty. Yeah. What do you think? It's like 50-50 sweet sour. It's, it's like a perfect balance between the two. Ooh. Oh, Definitely man. Definitely see that sour, like, twinge in your, the back of your cheeks. This is so good. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. I wouldn't even call this a beer, though. No, it does not <laughs> taste like beer at all. Um, it, it really just tastes like raspberry juice. No, no I shouldn't say juice. Because um, it doesn't have that, like, juice flavor and quality to it it just it wow it is so raspberry and so it's tart but also sweet at the same time so I love sours when it comes to beer it's really the only one I would ever choose I mean I would never choose beer but if beer is the only option then I always go for a sour so I really like that those sour flavors this the raspberry it's so like true to the raspberry flavor mm -hmm. and it's that perfect combo of yeah sour and sweet oh my gosh i think i think i have a new favorite you think you're in love i might be <laughs> um yeah i'm i think this is a new favorite yeah i think what's so good about it is like the raspberry flavor is so spot on it doesn't taste artificial at all no not at all it does have i guess the one characteristic that reminds me of the beer is it does kind of have like like the sour is like very sour but it does have the a similar like taste and feel to a sour yeah. beer yeah definitely but then it is on the more sweet side for sure mm -hmm. yeah like it 
It has that, like, consistency of a beer. Um, but, like, like, there's, like, the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest in the aftertaste, <clears throat> like, beer-like quality to it. Mm. But it's so small. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You know? Like, it's so faint. Yeah. That, like, it's hard to really, for me, it's hard to really say, like, oh, yeah, this tastes like a beer. Not at all. It's kind of like the the best of, like, a juice and, like, a sour. Yeah. Because usually if you try to combine the, the two, it's, like, kind of comes out funky. Yeah. But this one's, like, it's there. Yeah. This is really, really good. Oh, my gosh. Right, so what are you going to give it? Wow. I think... I think I'm going to give this a nine. Yeah? Yeah. It is, it's just so good, and I love sour flavors. Mm. I just, I love sour flavors, and this is just spot on. I could drink this all day. All yeah. day. I think it says there's there's five grams of sugar. Eh, whatever. Per serving. So, I mean, that's not. That's minimal. Yeah. I mean, that's not that much. For how much flavor it has, that's really good. Yeah. Oh, man. Per, all per 100 milliliters, so. <clears throat> all right, I give it a nine. This Actually, is oh. definitely, this is my favorite. Um, I still really like the strawberry recess. We, like, always mention that one in, like, every episode. But it's, like, it's on par for sure, the strawberry recess and this. I like them both. They're just so different because this is sour and the strawberry recess is like like sweet, fruity, florally. So they're just like totally opposite flavor profiles. But those are the two different flavor profiles that I love the most. So yeah, this is a nine. That's a nine. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna go with a nine too. This one this one does have more sugar though. That's fifteen grams of sugar for the whole can. Uh whatever. Cause that's like well, I mean, that's, that's a small factor, but it's still exactly. a factor. Because I think the recess has had minimal sugar, if any. Oh, yeah. I don't know if they had any sugar. So, like, for how little sugar they had to mm -hmm. the flavor, like, the recess was really tasty. Yeah. But in terms of, like, flavor, mm -hmm. I think this one has by far the most flavor. Oh, yeah. This is, oh, my God, so good. Because it has that, all that sugar, though. Yeah. I it's am not like... a crazy amount. It's, like, what, half or a third <clears throat> that of a soda. Yeah. So it's not terrible. But I think as a, a beer substitute or like a mixed drink substitute, mm -hmm. it's really good because it's not super unhealthy, oh, yeah. but it's got enough flavor to mm -hmm. to just like give you a little boost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I'll give it a nine. Oh, wow. This was such a surprise. I'm so pleasantly surprised by this. <laughs> wow. All right. Nines all around. Yeah. Got to make up for that lack of alcohol somewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it does. <laughs> All right, let's get into the episode. All right, let's do it. Okay, so Sex at Dawn, like where do we even begin with this book? <laughs> um, so Yeah, it is tough. There's so much. I know, there's so much. But the tagline is how we mate, why we stray, and what it means for modern relationships. And I love, I love that because it goes, it's so thorough. It Like the book starts out, looking at what's called like the standard narrative mm -hmm. um and that's basically the like narrative we have all been fed for years and years and years um 
of like, you know, men and women need to be in monogamous relationships together and they need to get married and have children and have their nuclear family and that's that. And that like men just always want to have sex. Women never really want to have sex, but they need men to like pay for things in their lives and take care of their children. And that's how we like come together. And that's the way the relationship dynamic works. And that like we never want the same thing. But yet here we are in relationship all the time. Yeah. That's like, it's like basically never, the standard narrative. It's a, yeah, it's very black and white. It's like a never-ending struggle where there's like no, mm-hmm. it's pretty bleak where there's like no, yeah. no happiness, like mm-hmm. zero-sum game. Yeah. If I take something from you, like you lose it and there's like, it, it's very like, it's very black and white. Yeah. And like very logical in a way, but also like limiting at the same time. Yeah, very limiting. I guess logical for like the beliefs at the time. But it's like within a very limited framework. Yeah. So like the standard narrative came about in like the 1800s. I can't remember the exact yeah, like, timing. Probably because it was with Darwin and mm-hmm. Hobbes. I mean I think it's been developed since like probably like the 1600s. It's just kind of been like developing over time. And I think it like yeah. really became like solidified. Came, came to be what we know now. Like, as yeah, a standard narrative. In yes. The, in the 1800s. 1800s. Yeah. And so like. the 1900s. So it's really looking at all of that research and like the 1800s, that like Victorian era was a really like, one, it was a very bleak time. And it also was like a time when religion was, I guess, like extra, what am I trying to say? When religion was really like at its prime in people's lives and also like, puritanism and you know and so that that sort of narrative of women need to be super pure and oh women don't have any sexual desires at all and like so it's like that was just like the idea and so then and the church was like really strong and also like reaffirming those ideas like it it was the church that was like basically putting those ideas out there that like you know sex is bad you know you can't have sex outside of marriage you should only be having sex to reproduce not for pleasure um pleasure is bad all that kind of stuff and so when like Hobbes and Darwin were like doing all of this research like basically we find out that like through their research they probably inferred that monogamy was actually not not exactly the best for humans. But because of the time period that they were living in, it probably, no, it definitely would not have been okay to say that. You know, this was still a time period where people were getting, you know, murdered by the church, or not murdered, they were like put on trial um, by the church for questioning church values and, and questioning the church. Like, people would, could still, like, die for that. And so, and then also to say that, like, women actually had desires, that was also, like, a big, to say something like that would have been so scandalous. And so it's, like, some of, some of this stuff, it's, like, some of the things they wrote, it was, like, very clear that they saw non-monogamy was was prevalent but then 
like two sentences later would be like, oh, but non-monogamy is like not a thing at all because like why? Yeah, they would try to, well, they would try to rationalize it to fit the narrative and like the religious morals that they had. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, the authors do a great job. I mean, they they describe it as Flintstoneization. Yeah, and I love that. Projecting your modern beliefs and ideals Mm -hmm. into the past and saying that, oh, like these prehistoric people had to have lived this way because this is, Mm -hmm. you know, how, how we live today and like how we think it is yeah and so they were like kind of doing the same thing exactly but yeah so it was interesting because there are some quotes in the book and there are some you know recognitions by Hobbes and Darwin and there's there's many other mm-hmm. researchers too those are just two, two big ones I remember yeah but yeah I mean they they pretty much say like yeah our findings show that like non-monogamy exists but like they mm-hmm. just didn't want to flat out say it so yeah. they, they like allude to it yeah but out of just like you know, probably fear for their safety and just to, like, mm-hmm. fit the, you know, the, the standard at the time. Yeah. You know, they didn't they And didn't then they would that. say something like... They tried to explain it away with some other yeah. reasoning. Be like, oh, but that's just, like, a fluke or that's just, like, a, a small percentage or that could never actually work, you yeah. know? And then... And that's it. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, essentially they, they said, like... You know, as you were saying that, like, men were, are only, like, or men, men can only provide, like, resources to women, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, women's, like, main drive is to, like, secure resources from a man. To se- yeah, to, to secure uh, a man with the resources to provide for her and her children. Yeah. Yeah. To provide physical safety and then, like, physical resources for her and her children. hmm Yeah. So, like, that's, like, okay, that's, like, the woman's yeah. sole drive, essentially. Yeah. And then the man sold drive is just to, it's just to spread his spread seed. Spread his seed, and then, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, oh, and then um, a big one was uh, pater- uh, paternity certainty. Uh huh. That's, that's when they push a lot. Yeah. So it's like a man would never, or a man would not want like another man sleeping with his woman because he he wants his his genes to be passed down through his lineage. Yeah, and why would he want to waste his resources on children that were not his? Yeah. Or that he wasn't certain were his. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So big, a big uh, idea behind the standard narrative was paternity certainty. Yeah. Like anything that like, like men wouldn't act outside of anything that would like, you know, deter them or prevent them from having that sort of certainty. Mm-hmm. And so that's why like, yeah, like sharing or like having more than one man like have sex with a woman. Yeah. Was like so like out of the question. Yeah. In their minds. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's just... <laughs> Yeah, so the book, the book like really digs deep into the standard narrative um, and how it just, it really, when you really look at it, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. And that the people who created the standard narrative probably also knew that it didn't make sense, but they couldn't say that. And so they just like omitted the things or explained away the things that didn't quite make sense. So that way the standard narrative could fit the standard narrative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, different ape species, right? Because mm-hmm. if you believe in evolution and humans have evolved from, from apes, not from monkeys, yeah, there's a, a branch off. Yeah. I don't remember how long ago. Millions mm-hmm. of years ago between the apes and the monkeys. Let me see if I can find it. And so we're talking. from the, 
you know, we're we're from the ape side. The monkeys are are their own thing. And uh, so on the ape side, there's the gorillas, the gibbon, the chimpanzee, and the uh, the bonobo. The bonobo. Sorry, I was blanking on that name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's I think those are the the main ones. There might be others too, but those are the main ones they talk about in the book. Hmm. And uh, so it's interesting because each each ape species really does have their own social structure. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Sorry, I pulled up. There's like this wonderful graph um, in the book. And so I just like pulled it up so we could see. Yeah, so all of the apes, there's like the macaw, the baboon, the gibbon, orangutan, gorilla, human, then bonobo, and chimp. So those are all the different apes. I think these are the monkeys, right? Is that the monkey side? Oh, yeah, my bad. The macaw and the baboon are monkeys. But yeah, the gibbon, orangutan, gorilla, human, bonobo, and chimp. So six different apes. Yeah, each with very, very different uh, social structures. Uh Uh-huh. And so they don't really go too much into the orangutan. Mm -mm. But the gibbon is actually the only purely monogamous ape. Yes. So there's, what did I say, six? One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, Yeah, there's six different apes. And the gibbon is the only one that is monogamous. And we're not counting humans because, as we've seen, we like to pretend we're monogamous, but clearly our actions say otherwise. Yeah. But, I mean, there's also examples amongst many humans yeah. that don't practice monogamy. Yeah, and we're going to get to that. But, so, <laughs> there's only one out of six of the different kinds of apes that are truly monogamous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One out of six. And so they talk a lot about uh, the bonobos, chimps, and gorillas because those are the ones that are closest to humans. So like when we're looking at the graph, gorillas came about before humans. Then humans came about from like the ape species and then the bonobo and then the chimp. So humans became like a species before the bonobo and the chimp. But gorillas came before humans. So that's kind of like what we're looking at. But they're all like relatively close together. Um, and so that's who they compare us to a lot. And, and so the book compares us the most to bonobos because the bonobos are the closest relation to humans and their social structure is closest to us. Their, the way they, they mate. Everything about the bonobo is so close to the humans and almost mimics humans exactly. And so that's, that's a big thing that they use. And so a lot of the research that was done before, like before this book and like when like research like this, like looking into, okay, well, have humans always been monogamous or have they not like, and looking into like the, the psychology around sexuality and like looking back at history to sort of see the patterns and stuff that started becoming really popular in like, I don't know, the fifties. And so a lot of the research that was done initially was done with chimpanzees. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And, like, we didn't even know that bonobos existed for, like, a really long time. So all of this research was initially done with chimpanzees, and it's very different than... The chimps are very different than, than humans, but they were thought to be our closest relative. And so they were like, but then once the bonobos were discovered, they found out that, wow, like our DNA is more closely related to the bonobo and actually our social structures, the way we interact, all of that is more closely related to the bonobo, but nobody was doing that research. Yeah, I mean that's I think that's the big theory about like how humans have evolved to how we are now. Like mm-hmm. how our brains are so much more, you know, dense and bigger than other monkeys. Mm-hmm. It was from like this elaborate social structure from I guess from the the bonobo or just from, you know, probably from the bonobo species. Um, or just prior species, actually because mm-hmm. humans came before yeah. bonobo. So yeah. Just like the elaborate, like intricate Social, social groups that we had mm-hmm. um that over time like the brain evolved to be able to just comprehend and like deal with yeah you know all this stimulation going on around it yeah they they make a, a really interesting point about vampire bats how vampire bats will go out and feed and come back and if there's another bat that like wasn't able to like feed or <coughs> excuse me or get enough blood a bat that did feed enough will like regurgitate some of that blood for the other bat who didn't get enough, right? It's like the way the the way to help everybody so that way the whole species can like continue to survive or whatever. But they yeah. will remember. Yeah. So the bat that like didn't have a great feed that night will remember that like, oh, Mike bat over here fed me. So when the tables have turned and I've fed really well, I will regurgitate some for Mike because he was so kind to me. And they will remember stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they will remember who wouldn't regurgitate and help them. And so that has caused vampire bats' brains to be, like, the biggest of, like, most of the bats because they have to remember that's a very important, like, social yeah. thing that they need to remember. And so it's, like, the same concept but, like, on a much, much bigger scale, obviously, yeah, for humans. And much more complex. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating because it's not, it's not necessarily, like, altruistic, right? Like, they don't, they're not like, oh, like, I'm doing this for the greater good. It's, like, yeah. it's purely a survival instinct because uh-huh. it's, like, oh, if, if I can, like, diversify my resources mm-hmm. and, like, share, yeah. then I'm more likely to, you know, have resources given to me in the future. Yes. So that way I can survive. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's a more... I guess, yeah, it's a more social and is more, it's like a, it's like an insurance policy or a safety net mm-hmm. that's developed. Cause yeah, it's, you know, there is, there is so much variability in like being able to find food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so along that same, that same concept, they, they look at the social structures of bonobos and of early humans. And it's like, it, so it's hunter-gatherers, right? We know that early humans were hunter-gatherers. They didn't live in, like, one place. They just moved about wherever they wanted, wherever there was lots of food, um, or just wherever they felt like, really. Um, 
And so they talk about that and how when you're in a hunter-gatherer society, you, you have to share. You have to share your resources for that same reason. Because it's, one, when you share, other people are going to share with you. But also, that's how you keep, like, your small tribe or group or whatever, like, safe and and well cared for. Mm -hmm. So that way you can continue to survive together because you need each other. Right? And so when, when everything is being shared, right, food, water, shelter, everything is being shared... It creates that more, uh, it's more about like the community and the we rather than, oh, well, what do I need? What's good for just me? And, and when you're looking at that as like the whole is more important than the one and you're doing that with everything, then why wouldn't sexuality be the same? You know, if you're hunter-gatherer, like why and share absolutely everything and care about your community so much why would you then say oh but I can only have sex with this one person and that's it and that's like one of the points big points that the book makes yeah and also the researchers have looked at more modern hunter-gatherer tribes that still exist today yes and essentially like those yeah I mean those, those same ideas still exist the idea that or of being individualistic or, or hoarding mm-hmm. um, or just taking, you know, more for yourself yeah. and not sharing as much. Like all of those ideas are just, are just completely like, shunned. And yeah. That's like, like the, that's, that's the like most the shameful sin. thing yeah. yeah, that you can do is hoard. Yeah. Cause yeah, it's, it's not about you. It's about the group as a whole. Uh huh. And so, yeah. And then they, I mean, they, I guess the research they did, it, it it showed that like those the contemporary like hunter gatherer tribes today are, were very similar to yeah like our prehistoric mm-hmm. human ancestors yeah because and they essentially shared everything it was all about like diversification and mm-hmm. and well, yeah which which allows you to like just be a lot like safer and like it also naturally allows like the stronger things to survive mm-hmm. when you're sharing amongst the whole group yeah so yeah it's yeah it's very very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So one of the stories that I found so interesting and so cool was they talk about this civilization in China that basically hadn't really been touched by modern society, right? So they have been operating like the way they've been operating for thousands of years without ever really... Um, being informed by any modern society so they looked at this this community and it's like the way it's structured was so beautiful to me I just was like wow I was like I want to go live there I want to live there um (laughs) but basically it's like their homes are like these big circles and in the middle is like the kitchen, the living room, the place where everybody gathers. And then around that is the rooms for the women. And it's like there's a door on either side of the room. There's a door into like the communal area and then a door to just the rest of the village. And at night, the women 
go into their rooms, they lock the door to the communal area, and they are encouraged to sleep with anybody they want, with anybody in the village, every single night. And they're encouraged to sleep with somebody different every single night. And, and it is up to the women. The women get to choose who they want to spend the night with. Now, they don't have to have sex necessarily, um, but they get to choose who they want to spend the night with. And, and the men just are like, yeah, sure. Like, oh, you're choosing me tonight? Great, let's go. You know, and like, and because that is the structure, then when these women get pregnant, it's the whole family raises the child. And it's more that, and her brothers raise that child like the child is their own. So it's like the brothers and then help raise. And then these children also wander around throughout the community just all the time. And they are welcome into any household. If a child walks in that you know is like from, you know, your friend down the street, it doesn't matter. Like, because all of the children are everyone's children, right? Because we don't know who the dad is. Does it matter? No, it's a child. We're going to love this child anyway. And it solidifies the community in such a beautiful way. I was just like mind blown. I was like, wow, can you imagine if right now we lived in a way where like, it doesn't matter like, oh, like this is my child, that's your child and we only take care of like the ones who are related to us. Can you imagine if it just like, if we lived in like smaller settings and then it didn't matter whose child was whose and you love on everyone and then these children grow up with a, such a sense of belonging. You know, they never feel isolated, they never feel unloved because they've had an entire village loving them and supporting them. Look at children now who come from like broken households where they're bouncing around, they feel they feel so isolated, they feel so unloved. Like the nuclear family is not working in so many reasons and and like monogamy creating uh, clearly is not working because we know all of these marriages 50% of them end in divorce and so it's just like crazy to me to like look at these societies and see how bonded they are and how what such like a, a beautiful upbringing all of these children have and then for us to look at them and be like oh that's weird look at look at how like immoral they are sleeping around all that kind of stuff like it's just it's mind-blowing to me yeah I mean I think the big difference, of course, is, like, the scale of it, right? Like, you yeah. can't do this on, like, a grand scale. Yeah. You know, there would be too much, like, confusion and, and chaos, I think, right? Well, yeah, and so but think, that's also something they bring up in the book. Yeah. Is that, like, humans aren't really, like, we, we reach capacity at a community of about 150. Yeah. That's the number I remember. Yeah, 150 people in a community is about when, like, our brains can, like, still remember everybody, still kind of know, but then like, and maintain like decent relationships. But after that, it's too big. Yeah. So I think, I, I think communities and like neighborhoods kind of naturally do that, right? Because that's like, 
you know, we still have the nuclear family, but, like, those families within, like, who live close to each other and within the neighborhood typically form, you know, closer, like, social bonds and connections. Yeah. And so it's not, like, I remember growing up and, like, I would just pop into a friend's house. Oh, totally. You know, I wasn't, like, I, I had to knock and, like, ring the doorbell, of course. And, like, sometimes <laughs> I could just walk in. It depends on how close the friend was. But, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, I had so that, too. It's it's not, like, the society we have now is, it's similar. Yeah. In, in certain regards. But, yeah, it's, you know, it's not so open and so, like, mm-hmm. free-flowing. Yeah. Is that society. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, to me, I don't know, to me, I guess, what I'm trying to get is, like, I think, I think just kind of maintaining that, like, like a hybrid system mm-hmm. of like the nuclear family, but just with like smaller, more like open communities. Yeah. Is like, you know, I think that's the way to do it. And I think a lot of people in general do do it like that. Yeah. And like for me, it's like the idea of like having a commune or like a compound is not so crazy, right? Like, think about like if there was like a cul de sac. And, like, everybody bought a house on that cul-de-sac. And then you've created, like, your own mini community in this cul-de-sac. And then it's, like, and all resources are shared. Food, water. Children can go to any house and get anything they need. Um, money, right? Everything is sort of, like, like, used to help. So it's, like, oh... You know, Susie down the street, you know, got like laid off or whatever. We're going to give, we're going to help take care of her child and give them money. And because eventually something is going to happen to us and she's going to do the same for us. Like that idea has always made so much sense to me. And, and that like everybody has their own thing to contribute. And, and, and so why not? And like, so that idea of like, living more as like a community together instead of like separate families and like oh you're going through a hard time oh so sorry good luck with that like that doesn't help anybody yeah you know yeah are you saying like oh like wish you the best or like sending some money uh-huh i mean that's that's better than nothing but <clears throat> i guess yeah. for me i think i think a big like the big divide is like with relationships though yeah. It's like, yeah, you can have these small, like, neighborhood communities and, like, yeah, the kids play together and, like, the families meet, but, like, still, you still have, like, the monogamous divide between, like, yeah. all the couples. Mm, but, so you haven't gotten to this part in the book yet because <laughs> you haven't finished it, but at the very end of the book, they talk about how swinging became a thing. All right. We are going to stop right there. I know we're right in the middle of the conversation, but this conversation ends up going on for quite a while. So we have split it up into three different episodes. So this is just the beginning. We have so much more to get into, and I promise we tie it all together at the end. So if you've been finding this fascinating, um, then you definitely need to check out the book, Sex at Dawn. Um, The link is in the show notes. So if you're like, yeah, I need this book, um, we've got the link for you. And yeah, like as usual, if you have been enjoying this podcast, then please, um, you know, rate it, subscribe to it, 
give us a five-star rating, you know, whatever feels good to you. Um, and as usual, you can find me on Instagram. Um, and one-on-one -on -one sessions are still available if you are like, okay, how do I do this whole polyamory thing? How do I talk to my partner and open up my relationship? How does some of this stuff work? <laughs> if you have questions, I probably have answers. So anyway, thank you so much for listening to today's episode and stay tuned because we've got parts two and three coming up next week and the week after. 